Good evening to you all. We've had a number of practice group meetings and um, we have one more practice uh, group session tomorrow morning. So at the end of that, every, everyone will have had uh, two practice group meetings. So some individual attention. And uh, we've talked about a lot of things in the hall as well, various teachings and, and suttas. And I th- thought uh, tonight I would reiterate... Um, some pieces of the teaching, especially those related to the cultivation of wise intention and concentration. And that I would do that in a couple of different ways. One would be by uh, offering some reading from the suttas, from the Buddha's teaching, uh, where he's talking about this in a fairly analytical kind of way. And the the other thing that I would offer would be some um, more poetic or narrative versions about what that particular teaching looks like when it's lived out in a human life. So I'm going to be drawing on a, a couple of different books. One is called The First Free Women, Poems of the Early Uh, Buddhist Nuns by Maddie Weingast. So this is his uh, imaginative reinterpretation of what's called the Theragata, which are Enlightenment poems um, from early nuns that have been preserved and handed down uh, from shortly after the time of the Buddha. And then uh, a story or two from a book by Ajahn Brahm called Who Ordered This Truckload of Dung? (laughs) So. The the first reading, The Mind is Luminous. This mind, O monks, is luminous, but it is corrupted by adventitious defilements. The uninstructed worldling does not understand this as it really is. Therefore, for him, there's no mental development. This mind, O monks, is luminous, but it is free from adventitious defilements. The instructed noble disciple understands this as it really is. Therefore, for him, there is mental development. This is a poem called Dantica the Elephant. And Dantica is the name of the the nun. So she says, while walking along the river, After a long day meditating on Vulture Peak, I watched an elephant splashing its way out of the water and up the bank. Hello, my friend, a man waiting there said, scratching the elephant behind its ear. 
Did you have a good bath? The elephant stretched out its leg, the man climbed up, and the two rode off like that, together. Seeing what had once been so wild, now a friend and companion to this good man, I took a seat under the nearest tree and reached out a gentle hand to my own mind. Truly, I thought, this is why I came to the woods. Someone offered a question about self-talk and how to talk to yourself in practice. That's onward leading. I took a seat under the nearest tree and reached out a gentle hand to my own mind. Truly, I thought, this is why I came to the woods. Okay. The wild elephant of the mind can be tamed with kindness. It cannot be overpowered by force. We work with the mind to enlist its cooperation. We don't use the goad. We don't spank the donkey. About inclining the mind to wise intention and letting go. This is from the Nikaya. Whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon that will become the inclination of the mind. Whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of the mind. As we may have noticed, the mind tends to think its own thoughts and run here and there and get itself in a lot of trouble with how it thinks. What if it can educate itself and choose to double down and think certain thoughts and choose to let go of others since they are not all of equal value? This is called Tissa, the third. I think she's the third person with this this name in the collection. Why stay here in your little dungeon? If you really want to be free, make every thought a thought of freedom. Break down your chains. Tear down the walls. Then walk the world a free person. There's not a lot of, I can't, I can't, I can't, in that. (laughs) On the theme of letting go as peace. See how letting go of 
the world is peacefulness. There's nothing you need to hold on and nothing that you need to push away. That's the Buddha. There's nothing you need to hold on to and nothing that you need to push away. This is the, the story from Ajahn Brahm that he calls... Actually, there's two stories here. Fear of pain. So this is his experience in working with this theme of letting go and the power of letting go. Fear is the major ingredient of pain. It's what makes pain hurt. Take away the fear and only feeling is left. In the mid-1970s, in a poor and remote forest monastery in northeast Thailand, I had a bad toothache. There was no dentist to go to, no telephone, and no electricity. We didn't even have any aspirin or Tylenol in the medicine chest. Forest monks were expected to endure. In the late evening, as often seems to happen with sickness... The toothache began to grow steadily worse. I considered myself quite a tough monk, but that toothache was testing my strength. One side of my mouth was solid with pain. It was by far the worst toothache I'd ever had, or have ever had since. I tried to escape the pain by meditating on the breath. I'd learned to focus on my breath when the mosquitoes were biting. Sometimes I counted 40 on my body at the same time. And I could overcome the feeling of being bitten by focusing on the feeling of breathing. I'd say that's pretty good concentration. (laughs) But the pain of this toothache was extraordinary. I would fill my mind with the feeling of the breath for only two or three seconds. Then the pain would kick in the door of the mind that I'd closed and come bursting in with furious force. I got up went outside and tried walking meditation. I soon gave up on that too. It really wasn't walking meditation. I was running meditation. I just couldn't walk slowly. The pain was in control. It made me run. But there was nowhere to run to. I was in agony. I was going crazy. I ran back to my hut, sat down and started chanting. Buddhist chants are said to possess supernormal power. They can bring you fortune, drive away dangerous animals, and cure sickness and pain. Or so it said. I didn't believe it. I'd been trained as a scientist. Magic chanting was all hocus-pocus, only for the gullible. So I began chanting, <laughs> hoping beyond reason that it would work. I was desperate. I soon had to stop that too. I realized I was shouting the words, screaming them. (laughs) It was very late and I was afraid I would wake up the other monks. With the way I was bellowing out those verses, I probably would have woken the whole village a couple of kilometers away. The power of the pain wouldn't let me chant normally. I was alone, thousands of miles from my home country, in a remote jungle with no facilities, in unendurable pain with no escape. I'd tried everything, I knew everything. I just couldn't go on. And that's what it was like. 
A moment of sheer desperation like that unlocks doors into wisdom, doors that are never seen in ordinary life. One such door opened to me then and I went through it. Frankly, there was no alternative. I remembered two short words. Let go. Let go. I'd heard these words many times before. I'd expounded on their meaning to my friends. I thought I knew what they meant, which is such a delusion. I was willing to attempt anything, so I tried letting go, 100% letting go. For the first time in my life, I really let go. What happened next shook me. The terrible pain immediately vanished and was replaced with the most delectable bliss. Wave upon wave of pleasure thrilled through my body. My mind settled into a deep state of peace. So still, so delicious. I meditated easily, effortlessly now. After my meditation in the early hours of the morning, I lay down to get some rest. I slept soundly, peacefully. When I woke up in time for my monastic duties, I noticed I had a toothache but it was nothing compared to the previous night. So here he, you know, he's clearly talking about the first and second arrow that the Buddha offers in one of his teachings, where there's the basic experience that we have of something that's difficult, painful, unpleasant. And the mind's reaction to the recognition of its pain or difficulty is to try to... uh, get rid of it, to push it away when we don't actually have the power to make that objective experience difficult, different. But we meet it with objection and resistance and now, now it's uh, on an emotional level there's suffering and aversion in addition to the physical unpleasantness or the emotional unpleasantness that was there. Now we're fighting with something that we can't conquer. That's the second arrow. And the Buddha says, for uh, people haven't trained their minds, that's the only way that they know how to deal with it. That's the only strategy that they have is to try to get rid of it or to basically try to reach for something pleasant, to try to reach for some substitute sensory gratification, see if they can like plaster it over the difficulty to conceal it. So in this situation, he was pushed to the limit and he ran through all his tricks, <laughs> all of which were, co- were coming out of uh, some form of uh, aversion and desire to conquer it. And when he finally gave up, when he finally came, gave up, he gave up the second arrow. Now, there's a follow-on story to this called Letting Go of Pain. In the previous story, it was fear of the pain of the toothache that I had to let go of. I'd welcomed the pain, embraced it, and allowed it to be. That's why it went. Many of my friends who have been in great pain have tried this method and found out it does not work. They come to me to complain, saying my toothache was nothing compared to their pain. That's not true. Pain is personal and cannot be measured. I explained to them why letting go didn't work for them using the story of my three disciples. 
The first disciple in great pain tries letting go. Let go, they suggest, gently and wait. Let go, they repeat, when nothing changes. Just let go. Come on, let go. I'm telling you, let go. Let go. We might find this funny, but that's what we do most of the time. We let go of the wrong thing. We should be letting go of the one saying let go. We should be letting go of the control freak within us, and we all know who that is. Letting go means no controller. The second disciple in terrible pain remembers this advice and lets go of the controller. They sit with the pain, assuming they're letting go. After 10 minutes, the pain is still the same, so they complain that letting go doesn't work. I explain to them that letting go is not a method for getting rid of the pain. It is a method for being at peace with pain. The second disciple had tried to do a deal with pain. Okay, I'll let go for 10 minutes and you pain will disappear. Okay? That's not letting go of pain. That's trying to get rid of pain. Anybody have the experience of slapping on the, the medicom over for pain in the retreat? Something's going on, either uh, physical and mental, and it's unpleasant, and it's difficult, and really you're in a state of aversion in relationship to it, and so you like, you know, spackle on <laughs> some meta and hope that it's going <laughs> to disappear. <laughs> the great medicom over. <laughs> And then the third disciple, in horrible pain, says to that pain something like, pain, the door to my heart is open to you. Whatever you do to me, come in. The third disciple is fully willing to allow that pain to continue as long as it wants, even for the rest of their life, to allow it to even get worse. They give the pain freedom. They get, give up trying to control it. That is letting go. Whether the pain stays or goes is now all the same to them. Only then does the pain disappear. This is very paradoxical, isn't it? Sometimes, especially in, in uh, Vipassana practice, when somebody is experiencing a hindrance or a difficult state of body and mind, um, we'll say, uh, and they'll say, well, you know, I, I noted it, I went to it, I practiced with it, um, and it didn't go away. <laughs> it didn't go away. And uh, I've heard, heard Carol Wilson say something like, it knows when you want it to go away. You know, if you approach it like that, if you approach it with that mind, mind, it knows when you're paying attention to it to get it to go away. Huh. It, it only, only settles for the real deal in terms of mindful attention uh, and some uh, inclination of the mind towards uh, equanimous uh, relationship to it.
Here's another uh, version of this, more poetic. This is uh, Dhammadina, she who has given herself to the Dharma. For so long I thought only of the river's end. Then one morning I set my paddle down to watch the sun rise over the eastern hills only to find myself floating somehow gently upstream. I promise it was not what I had expected. So this is very interesting, the the power of yin has a great deal of potency in it. Hmm. Non-resistance letting go of the attempt to impose, impose one's will upon situations when there's no control available. So this was a really interesting Dharma learning for me when I came to practice. So I I was uh, raised in a military family you know, so I would, used to hear these Dharma teachers offer these teachings, and they'd say things like, "Let go," you know, "Surrender," and I was like, "We don't do surrender in my family. <laughs> this is this is not like part of the. This is not not part of the agenda to like surrender. What do you mean surrender?" Um, so, you know, I had to do a little bit of re-education uh, and orientation to the Buddha's own framework related to this, right? Because my, you know, there, there was a lot of um, pretty well-developed uh, qualities like resolve and, you know, endurance and willingness to, you know, hurt. <laughs> you know, I can remember when the uh, I first got the first 10-day retreat I gave, they gave very traditional instructions. Everybody was floor sitting, and the instruction that was given was, when pain arises in the, in the body, just note pain. Pain, pain. And so I actually had a lot of physical pain in the body. I had a lot of physical uh, pain in the legs in particular. And I was sitting on a a Zafu and Seiza position. And at the end of the sittings, I couldn't get up. I had to like fall over to the side and lay there for about five minutes before I could straighten out my legs in order to be able to get up. So was that smart or what? So, you know, there was a lot of endurance there and willingness to uh, keep going and that kind of thing, but not necessarily a lot of what you might call sama sampajana. Anybody heard that Pali, Pali phrase? Yeah. Clear comprehension is what it means. It means that the mind is aware of the specifics, but also of the big picture, and so it can uh, proceed with wisdom. <laughs> I didn't didn't have a lot of wisdom. 
maybe I still don't, I don't know. But, uh, but this whole idea of um, learning that in the immediate sense, we're not needing to make things different most of the time, right? That most of the energy of the heart-mind can be reserved for actually knowing what we're experiencing and finding wise relationship. And that's how things open. So that's a different kind of version than thinking you need to uh, break the door down to get in. You ever had one one of these experiences where you you've watched somebody <laughs> go up to a door, like in an office building or, or something, um, and they're like pushing the door and pushing the door and pushing the door and pushing the door, and they can't get in. And then at some point, they realize, oh, <laughs> right, it's like, oh, it goes this way. I see. So there's there's some learning there for all of us. Um, for so long, I thought only of the river's end, only of the end state that was desired, or was imagined and desired as an imagination <laughs> object. Then one morning, I set my paddle down to watch the sun rise over the eastern hills. Cease effort, move to an allowing state, but a state of presence, noticing, only to find myself somehow floating gently upstream. Oh. Non-doing. Non-doing is doing something. I promise it was not what I had expected. About wise effort. We talked about the distinction between wholesome and unwholesome states, how states that arise out of Craving, aversion, and delusion are unwholesome uh, states, thoughts, actions. And states arising out of uh, generosity, loving kindness, compassion, wisdom are wholesome and onward leadings, right? That's the, that's the major axis between um, that the Buddha talks about in wise uh, intention and in a mundane wise view. So the Buddha says, whatever wholesome states there are, they are rooted in diligence, converge upon diligence, and diligence is reckoned the best of them all. Rooted in diligence, converge on diligence, and diligence is reckoned the best of them all. Which is a way of saying, you know, you got to engage, you got to take responsibility for your own development. Even though we don't have have control, um, yet we still 
we still have to apply ourselves. So this is uh, Uttara, north. Life had always been hot, sweaty work. First I learned to control my hands, actions, then my mouth, speech, then my mind. As things slowed, I sank down, down, down to the bottom of the heart sea. Descent, descent into deeper levels of the mind. There I dug out the root of all craving and I swam back to the surface. The water had grown cool and outside everything had grown cool as though the heart had traveled north. The cooling of the heart, heart mind, cooling from the fires of the greed, aversion, and delusion that the Buddha talks about in the fire sermon. Life had always been hot, sweaty work. First I learned to control my hands, then my mouth, then my mind. As things slowed down, I sank down, down, down to the bottom of the heart sea. There I dug out the root of all craving and swam back to the surface. The water had grown cool and outside everything had grown cool, as though the heart had traveled north. So this is a reference to the extinguishing of the the fires uh, internal fire of dukkha of wrong view. So there's a suggestion there that um, craving was eliminated. And craving is the the primary hindrance that stems from delusion that needs to be be addressed. Delusion is the the root of discretionary human suffering, and craving is its primary manifestation. So she's using this language of coolness in part because, you know, she's living in a very warm place. So that would be a very easeful image. On the theme of the abandonment of hindrances is freedom. Samanapala Sutta. But when one sees that these five hindrances have been abandoned within oneself, one regards that as freedom from debt, as good health, as release from prison, as freedom from slavery, as a place of safety. When one sees these five hindrances have been abandoned within oneself, gladness arises. When one is gladdened, rapture arises. When one's mind is filled with rapture, one's body becomes tranquil, tranquil and concentrated. 
again, this theme of finding freedom through letting go, letting go, rather than acquisition. This is called Patakara's 30 nuns. So Patakara was a very important nun in the early days. She was a a fully liberated person and a very skilled teacher. She brought many people to enlightenment herself. Farmers take grain from the earth and branches from the trees. They crack open one with the other and take what's left to feed their families. You're all like unripe grain. Take time to grow. Then leave the ground behind and let your husks be stripped away. I promise, less is more. So Patakara told us, So we sat on the ground like unripe grain. We gave ourselves to the path, and the path broke us apart. What we feared most is now seen for what it is. True peace, freedom. All that broke apart was the darkness we had for so long been calling our whole world. We gave ourselves to the path, and the path broke us apart. What does that mean? It seems like it refers to the the way the practice restructures our understanding and causes our view to reshape itself when we come to experience that what we thought we are what we thought was most important in terms of what we wanted wasn't necessarily that at all. So the shell of a lot of our delusions gets broken. You know, when we start out, we want to be able to have it our way, but just work a lot better. You know what I mean? Have more payoffs and... reinforce our egoic self and not have to die or anything. (laughs) But then we realize it's different than that. We gave ourselves to the path and the path broke us apart. What we feared most is now seen for what what it is. That it's not about acquisition. It's about relinquishment of what causes suffering. True peace, freedom. All that broke apart was the darkness we had for so long been calling our whole world. What's lost is delusion and the suffering that arises out of delusion.
I promise less is more. There's another story that touches on this theme of the abandonment of hindrances as freedom. Abhiru Pananda, delighted in beauty. Haven't you spent enough time comparing your hair and your clothes and your face to the hair and the faces and the clothes of those around you? See the body for what it is. Real beauty is in the clear open light of the non-judgmental heart. On the theme of subduing the hindrances, setting the cycle, stage for a virtuous cycle, the Buddha says, whoever, whether standing or walking, sitting or lying down, calms their mind and strives for that inner stillness in which there's no thought, they have the prerequisite to realize supreme illumination. And when one knows that these five hindrances have left them, gladness arises in them. From gladness comes light. From the light in one's mind, the body is tranquilized. With a tranquil body, one feels joy, and with joy, one's mind is concentrated. Being thus detached from sense, Desires detached from unwholesome states, one enters and remains in the first jhana. Isn't that interesting? So the 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 way to access these inner states of tranquil, peaceful, blissful, beautiful absorption is through letting go. Not through approaching it with a a gaining mind, as they say in Zen. And then there's some teachings on unwise effort and perfectionism. And this is a a classic uh, story on wise and unwise effort and discerning the difference between the two of them by taking feedback from what's actually happening when you're practicing in a certain way. As Venerable Sona was meditating in seclusion, after doing walking meditation until the skin of his soul was split and bleeding, this train of thought arose in his awareness. So he's doing walking meditation until his, his feet are like split. I'm one of the most energetic disciples of the Blessed One, but my mind has not attained liberation from the taints by non-clinging, meaning it ain't working. 
I'm trying really hard. I'm doing my best. What's up with that? I'm working a lot harder than those other guys. So the Buddha comes to to him and says, Now, Sona, before when you were a house dweller, you were skilled at playing the lute? And he says, Yes. And, he, and the Buddha says, And when the strings of your lute were too taut, was your lute in tune and easy to play? And he says, No, Lord. But when the strings of your lute were neither too taut nor too loose, but adjusted to an even pitch, was your lute then well-tuned and easy to play? And he says, yeah. And he says, similarly, Sona, if energy is applied too forcefully, it will lead to restlessness. And if energy is too lax, it will lead to lassitude which basically means torpor. Therefore, Sona, keep your energy in balance and there seize your object. Seize your object, the, uh, the object being um, the meditation object. So, what it looks like. when you give yourself fully to the path. So this is a genta, conqueror. I was forever getting lost until one day the Buddha told me, to walk this path, you'll need seven friends. Mindfulness, curiosity, courage, joy, calm, stillness, and perspective. For many years, these friends and I have traveled together, sometimes wandering in circles, sometimes taking the long way around. There were days when I thought I couldn't go on. There were days when I thought I was finally beaten. It's scary to give all of yourself to just one thing. What if you don't make it? What if you give it everything and you don't make it? Oh, my heart. You don't need to go it alone. Train yourself to train just a little more gently. One can be completely committed without driving oneself in ways that are unskillful. So what is, what is wise effort? It looks different at different times. Some aspects of it are always clear. The access of Wise intention, wise attention, that piece is always clear. But what that looks like at any given moment, it could be something that really calls forth a lot of energy, a lot of commitment, a lot of resolve. Or it could be a situation that really calls for letting go. Kindness, compassion being brought consciously brought into the foreground of the mind, not being demanding and insistent on immediate result. Sometimes wandering in circles, sometimes taking the long way around. There were days when I thought I couldn't go on. There were days when I thought I was finally beaten. 
It's scary to give all of yourself to just one thing. What if you don't make it? That sense of like being right out there. My heart is really in this now. My heart is like completely committed to this right now. And then the arising of, of fear. What if I'm the kind of person who can't do it? But she sees it. Oh, my heart, you don't have to go it alone. Train yourself to train just a little more gently. It's okay, baby cakes. It's all right. Back to the question about how to talk to yourself in practice. It's okay. It's okay. You good. on the theme of jhana as making the mind fit to work. How you work with the mind. So the Buddha was actually a master of using many images to convey his teachings. And he taught differently with different people. You know, different social classes of of people, people with different professions, people from different tribal groups, and there are many, many, many tribal groups uh, at the time as there still uh, is in India. But very often he would uh, draw images from their daily life, you know, whether it's their, their work or the natural environment, and he would use them to illustrate some of the, the principles that he wanted to convey. So here he's, he's talking about gold and the refining of gold. And he says, There are these five corruptions of gold corrupted by which gold is neither malleable nor wieldly nor radiant but brittle and not properly fit for work. So it's not 24 karat gold. There's other stuff admixed in it, right, when it comes out of the the ground. He says, Iron's a corruption of gold, corrupted by which gold is neither malleable nor wieldy nor radiant, but brittle and not properly fit for work. Then he goes on and says the same thing about copper, tin, lead, and silver. These are the five corruptions of gold, corrupted by which gold is neither malleable nor wieldy nor radiant, but brittle. So people at the time would know what this imaging was referring to. And they would know, for instance, that pure gold, 24-karat gold, is something that you get by refining. And that pure gold has many properties um, that are rather remarkable. For instance, it can be uh, put into very small strands and drawn out at great lengths. It can, it can be very pliant. It can be, be worked into um, very beautiful, for instance, jewelry that has a great deal of be, uh, grain of detail in it. So it'll just, in the hands of a skilled goldsmith, 
it, it's very, very, very cooperative. And that's one of the reasons it's so valuable in addition to the fact that it's uh, radiant. So then he goes on and he says, so too there are these five corruptions of the mind, corrupted by which the mind is neither malleable nor wieldy nor radiant but brittle and not rightly concentrated. What five? Sense, desire, ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness and doubt. These are the five by which the mind is neither malleable nor wieldy nor radiant, but brittle and not rightly concentrated. So here again he's saying, you know, you have to have to develop skill in recognizing the hindrances and knowing what to do in relationship to them. And work with them when they're present in the mind in a way that's skillful, just like a goldsmith would work with, you know, raw gold that's admixed with other things. So the the comment here would be Vijaya Victor. When everybody else was meditating, I'd be outside circling the hall. Finally, I went to confess. I'm hopeless, I said. The elder nun smiled. Just keep going, she said. Nothing stays in orbit forever. If this circling is all you have, why not make this circling your home? I did as she told me and went on circling the hall. If you find yourself partly in and partly out, if you find yourself drawn to the path but also drawing away, I can assure you you're in good company. Just keep going. Sometimes the most direct path isn't a straight line. So we have to work with what we got, right? Whatever our condition tendencies of mind are, whatever our psycho-emotional, spiritual pattern is, that's, that's the raw gold. That's what we've, what we've got. Another poem on this same theme of working with. And this uh, poem in the form of an agricultural image, which is very common to the time because most of the economy was agriculture, you know, subsistence agriculture. Patakara, wandering robe. Farmers turn up the soil plant seeds and wait. The seeds of intention planted in the mind stream with the metaphrases one by one. The intention of goodwill. 
the cultivation of this within ourselves with every phrase. Farmers turn up the soil, plant seeds, and wait. All by itself, water pours down from the sky and turns earth into food. After all these years sleeping on the ground, walking before dawn and begging for every meal, where's my harvest? Late one evening, I was washing my feet after another long day of sitting and walking. You know what those are like. (laughs) The water poured over my feet and onto the ground. I let my mind go, and it flowed downhill with the water towards my little hut. I went inside, sat on the bed, and lowered the wick of the lamp. All by itself, the flame went out. I let my mind go. I let my mind go. I released it from demand for result. I let my mind go and it flowed downhill with the water. It went in the direction of the grain of reality, not against it. I went inside, sat on the bed, and lowered the wick of the lamp. All by itself, the flame went out. Non-doing in the moment of awakening, non-fashioning. It finds you lawful. The lowering of the wick had the result All by itself the flame went out. And here there's a talking about the flame of greed, aversion, and delusion in the mind. And the the last of these is called Sama Song. Like a dog forever getting ready to sit, all day and all night I circled my cushion. These days, body and mind sit together like old friends. Since we aren't getting anywhere, they eventually decided, why not have a seat and try to relax? There are many paths. The the paradox of uh, complete acceptance, letting go of what Ajahn Brahm refers to in his story as the control freak. So let's just sit for a, a moment.
letting yourself know your experience as it is right now, exactly as it is. May our practice be a cause and condition for our own awakening and that of all beings everywhere. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.